0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Avi Tyler Todd about the moral government theory of atonement, Jonathan Edwards' influence on theology, and the origins of the SBC. So we cover a ton of ground in this episode. You're going to hear about who Jonathan Edwards is and what kind of influence he had, especially on early Southern Baptists, why many of the SBC founders ended up rejecting penal substitutionary atonement. And is the issue of penal substitutionary atonement connected with some of those SVC leaders rejecting the creeds? We're going to cover topics like what is moral government theory uh, of the atonement? Why did Baptists find this attractive? And tons more. It is so much fun. You're going to love this one. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode in particular or ideas for requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at the website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this is going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we a podcast is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. We think, especially in the Baptist context, we need more serious thinkers. I think both Brandon and I grew up in contexts that did not almost villainize to some degree the the virtue of knowledge and wisdom. Not Maybe not necessarily wisdom, but knowledge. Uh, it was almost seen as a, a negative thing that you wouldn't want to do because it would keep you from living a holy Christian life. But what we've wanted to do is say, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can both be rigorous in your thinking and also generous and kind in your disposition, which is why we've singled out a couple of virtues that we really want to try to promote, which are uh, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we want to meld these two things together and say, Let's be serious about our thinking, but let's also be serious about our character and our own virtues. We think there are dispositions that should be displayed in our interactions with others, the others that we agree with and that we disagree with. Now, today, we've got somebody who's on the podcast who is more closely aligned to us than, than we sometimes have. Sometimes, you know, we have people who are completely all over the map theologically, but we have a Baptist today with us. So this is like our sweet spot, our home. We have Abby Tyler Todd, doctor, excuse me, who is a pastor in near where I grew up in Illinois now. So I'll let him introduce himself. You probably, you might know of him because he's basically a publishing machine. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure every time I get on Twitter, there's a new article or book chapter or something coming out. that I'm like, wow, that looks fascinating. I must read that. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I read slower than you write. So I am excited to introduce you all. And we're going to, man, the topic today is just, it's going to be fun. So we're talking about Edwards. We're talking about the origins of the SBC. We're talking about moral government theory of atonement, all sorts of fun stuff. So this is going to be uh, an absolute delight. So Dr. Todd, before we jump in, For those who don't know you, actually, give me a little bit of background on who you are, and maybe what was it that made you interested in this particular area of study? I mean, you could have studied anything. Why study the historical theology of this period of Baptist life and before?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I love the show. I've I've listened to, I don't know if about every episode, but I've I've listened to most of them, I I believe. Um, So thanks for the invite. Uh, my name is Abby Tyler Todd, and I go by the middle name not because I'm being pretentious, uh, but because I'm the third Abby in my family. Um, and so there's there's an Abby Dale Todd about two hours down the road, uh, and all of his former football players always Facebook message me, thinking that that I'm him. Um, and so finally, I just stuck the Tyler next to my name, hoping that they wouldn't be confused with my granddad or my dad. Uh, I'm a pastor in Marion, Illinois, uh, Third Baptist Church. Not first, not second, but third. Uh, some people pe- some people think that's funny. Although Richard Fuller, I just found this out the other day, the third president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I believe, uh, was pastor of Seventh Baptist Church of Baltimore. Uh, that's the highest I've ever heard. Um, so anyway, I'm at 3rd third, third Baptist of Marion, and I'm an adjunct professor of theology at Luther Rice College and Seminary uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia in Lithonia, if you're uh, familiar with the Atlanta area. I used to pastor in that area. Uh, I have my PhD in theology, even though I delve strongly in American history, uh, my background is theology, and so uh, I get... I'm technically a teacher in theology. Um, as I've found, uh, I kind of get to go and swap back in both worlds. When I'm around you guys, I think I feel like a history guy, cause you guys are like super theology. Um, but when I'm around the history crowd, I feel theology. Um so I'm kinda I'm kinda like a Nathan Finn. I look up to Dr. Finn. Nathan Finn's probably one that kinda goes in and out. Uh so am I. I to your to your other question uh Tom Nettles is the one who kind of set me off on the trajectory of Edwards. I would say he's another historical theologian uh at Southern. I did not get I did not write a dissertation for my THM. Um I'm not sure why in hindsight. Uh but at Southern I got my THM and I uh I took some classes under Dr. Nettles. I took two Edwards classes. Uh, and I was also formed by Michael Haken. So I'm a Michael Haken, Nettles product. Um, I think I get uh, a lot of my Fuller emphasis from Haken, naturally. Fuller was pulling me to the to, across the pond, and uh, you might say that Dr. Nettles was trying to keep me in America. Um, and so I ultimately, I wrote on Fuller, and Fuller made his way into my dissertation, but my dissertation inevitably was with Richard Furman, who uh, Dr. Nettles planted into my brain. Uh, I, I feel like when I'm describing my dissertation and my education, I, I, f- I describe it like Paul describes his coming to the gospel. Um, I'm one untimely born. Uh, I was not raised Baptist. Um, and I actually pastored my first church in a Christian church. Uh, which is really heavily, really prevalent where I'm from in Western Kentucky, um, and also I would say that I, you know, I, I went, I felt like a, a kind of a salmon going downstream. Everybody was kind of trying to go from New Orleans to Southern, and I actually left Southern to go to New Orleans, um, and so uh, once you could, you could say that Haken and Nettles put the uh, love of. Edwardsian theology in me, and then I just kind of went hog wild and studied um, that at New Orleans under uh, Adam Harwood.
1: So, as we've already mentioned, we're going to be talking about Jonathan Edwards and his influence on early Southern Baptists. Let's start with I, I feel like 99% of our listeners are going to know a fair amount about Jonathan Edwards, but let's start with just a brief who is Jonathan Edwards, and then you can go into um, his influence on the early Southern Baptists.
2: Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan theologian, uh, often called America's theologian just for his titanic influence in 200 years of, uh, 300 years of church history. Uh, He lived in the early 18th century. If you're going to know about Edwards, you need to know about really two important movements that were going on during his life uh, the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. Um, He's been called the Apostle to the Enlightenment. Um, some, I think one really well, well, good a good description of his project is that he was pouring the old wine of Calvin of Calvinism into the new wine skins of the Enlightenment. Uh, that's what he was trying to do. And then, of course, the Great Awakening was a, a you know a pouring out of the Spirit um, during his uh, during his lifetime in the 1730s and the 1740s. And Edwards was one of the so-called new lights who believed that uh, the revival was in fact a work of God and that it needed to be defended, but it also needed to be dissected. Uh, and so he has often been called the theologian of revival. So he, he's a theologian, a very a very enlightened theologian, but he also believes in heartfelt religion. And of course, it is the heartfelt religion that, um, that Southern Baptists or early Southern Baptists really take to uh, in the early 19th century.
0: So, as, as I think about Edwards and who he is, how influential is he on the early Southern Baptists? Is it directly Edwards? Is it mediated through other sources? I know you've got this whole new divinity movement. Um, I'm not a scholar and all that kind of stuff. So, you tell me what's going on.
2: <laughs> well, Southern Baptists today, and let's just face it, most evangelicals today, don't give two hoots about the New Divinity, uh, but they should. Uh, you know, you. Worry, I'll tell you where it's most blatantly obvious that Southern Baptists don't know anything about the New Divinity is when they talk about Andrew Fuller. They can't make heads or tails about what Fuller is doing. They like the confessional Calvinism part of Fuller, but they don't want to talk about the other side of Fuller. Um, and he was he was really influenced. And And to get back to your question, I would say early Southern Baptists are influenced by Edwards uh, on on by three fronts. One by Edwards directly. Uh, religious affections was his most enduring work, but his most popular work uh, during his lifetime and afterward was the diary of David Brainerd. Um, his uh, freedom freedom of the will. Um, was just tremendous. I don't even think we really understand just how influential that work was. I think I think R.C. Sproul, I, I, I told someone this on Twitter the other day, uh, R.C. Sproul called it the most important work ever published on American soil. Um, it's it just, it just an unbelievable work that really fl- influenced Southern Baptists, you might even say, uh, to the present day. The second was from the New Divinity itself. Timothy Dwight, his grandson, Uh, I think Southern Baptists probably need to understand a little bit more about Dwight. He was the president of Yale. Uh, Early Southern Baptists loved him. He wasn't uh, over their heads, Uh, and so Dwight really influenced a lot of folks um, and some of his disciples in New England. And then, of course, Fuller is the third prong. Edwards influences Fuller, Uh, who then influences Southern Baptists, because of course many low-church Southern Baptists in the early 19th century are not really... Edwards might be over their head, or they might not want to read um, this kind of high-minded Congregationalist, but they'll sure read somebody who's got a Baptist next to his name. Um, So early Southern Baptists are heavily influenced by Edwards. Sometimes they don't even really know that they're being influenced by Edwards, like, for instance, surprising works, uh, like revival narratives, Edwards sparks that. Um, they're sometimes even using Edwardsian language, and they're not even realizing it. So I, I would say that Edwards, in my book, I wrote a book uh, called Southern Edwardsians, and I, and I identify four schools of Edwardsianism. Uh, simple Edwardsianism, which is just straight from Edwards. There's New Divinity Edwardsian ism, there's Fullerite Edwardsianism, and then there's uh, Im, Im, I- implicit Edwardsianism. Uh, and so I spend a lot of time with Fullerite. I think that's most people today are probably fairly aware, and any kind of Baptist historian is somewhat aware that Fuller was heavily influenced uh, by Edwards, but not everybody is always aware of how heavily Fuller influenced um, Southern Baptists, and, and of course it was substantial. So
0: I feel like part of this interview, we're in the interview, we're kind of like melding two streams. So you've got a book on moral government theory, which is, I guess, Richard Furman's understanding of the atonement and then the Southern Edwardsians. So the flip side, we're talking a little bit about the, the four streams of Edwards um, dissemination, the theory of the atonements and how that impacted early, the uh, early founders of the SPC. I think you mentioned how moral government theory becomes quite popular. So why is it that they found this theory of the atonement attractive? So maybe before you answer that, just give me a you know 10-second definition of moral government versus penal substitutionary atonement, which I assume, if you're listening today, if you're a Southern Baptist, you probably affirm some version of penal substitutionary atonement or at least understand what it is. But I don't know if you know what moral government theory is.
2: Yeah, so I did my dissertation on Richard Furman because he kind of blended those theories, but that was actually the, the my book. I actually wrote an entire book on just the moral governmental theory, and I define the theory, and I need to read it because, I, one, I spent a lot of time on it, um, and two, you just gotta... It's It's really technical, and you have to understand it if you're gonna understand what early Southern Baptists believed, and I would go ahead and say you need to understand moral governmental theory if you understand if 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 you're gonna if you're gonna ask the question why has penal substitutionary atonement always had this kind of uh, tenuous relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention, it's probably because of moral governmental theory. Here's the definition of this theory, which by the way, the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention rejected traditional Southern Baptist rejected traditional penal substitutionary atonement and held to this view. As a public exhibition of the evil consequences of sin and God's displeasure with it, Christ suffered the equivalent of damnation. Okay, that's important. Christ suffered the equivalent of damnation in order to maintain the honor of the law, to vindicate the moral governor, and to achieve the most good for his moral universe. Christ did not endure the actual penalty of the law but suffered extra-legally, that's important adverb non-savingly and non-transferably as a substitute for punishments in order to satisfy public and rectoral justice and to open the door for sinners to be pardoned of their sins upon faith by a good and just ruler so that's the that's the th- the, the definition i dare anyone to come up with a better definition of that theory. Uh, and and the reason that's pretty much the reason I wrote the book. I mean, I was I was invited to write the book. Uh, but that's the reason nobody can touch it, is because it's such a technical theory. Um, but there are different versions of it. But one of the things I found that was so appealing to early Southern Baptists is it's a very preachable theory. And you might kind of shake your head at that and go, well, that sounds like a really technical theory. I don't know how in the world that could be preachable. But moral governmental theory was handcrafted for a four-point Calvinistic stance. Uh, moral governmental theory was, in some ways, like a loaded gun pointed at limited atonement. Um, it was crafted, and I use that word crafted because it was a very—I mean—they were taking Edwards's ideas and making their own version of it, and it really took off. If you—if you ever talk about the second awake, the second great awakening. Is, I would go so far as to say, I don't know if I should say that. I, I would say the majority of Second Great Awakening revivalists are preaching moral governmental theory of atonement, period. And uh, I would even go say 75%. Um, or Charles Finney alone, I mean, my goodness, Charles Finney loves moral governmental theory of atonement. Um, and so getting back to this idea, they are convinced that the atonement has become too commercialized. Um, they are convinced that theologians, Calvinistic theologians are quantifying the atonement in to the to the extent that God is becoming a creditor um, to the extent that somehow God is owed this much for this much sin, so there's this much suffering or this many drops of blood. Um, and even they're they're even convinced that Universalists are kind of uh, kind of toying around with that. So the idea of moral governmental theory, one of the central ideas is that the, commer- the, the, the the atonement cannot be quantified or commercialized, and it is simply about bringing back honor to God who has been disrespected for sin uh, and then making God free to pardon those who would come to Him in faith. Because, of course, the idea is if, you've, if Christ already paid this much in blood or this much in suffering or this much in pain to the Father, then sinners can, in theory, go to the Father at Judgment Day and say, this much has been paid for me, where is my salvation?
1: So you mentioned Furman, and then you also mentioned the first uh, president of the convention, and his name is escaping me right now, is that Johnson? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't yes. really matter. But so you mentioned those two figures. Uh, how, how? So, and, but we also have figures like Boyce who don't seem to to fit into that mold. So was this um, something that was a, a huge point of controversy in other early Southern Baptist days, or was it just kind of like, okay, well, um, you know, you have this belief on the atonement, I have this belief, we can still be friends, or was it was it really a point of contention?
2: I'm gonna. I have a chapter in my book on how Boyce was raised in a southern Edwardsian world. And what and I and I really think people don't understand this. People think that Boyce just kinda uh came out of the womb as a five-point Calvinist and went over to the land of Hodge up in New Jersey and then just they just kinda spit him back out as if he were this pristine Princetonian Calvinist. I will say that Boyce was always pretty high on his Calvinism, but Boyce really cuts against the grain for that time. There is no such thing as high Calvinism as we understand it today, as we understand it in Hodge or Warfield or um, Machen or uh, Alexander. There is no such thing as high Calvinism really until the days of Boyce. So that's why there's this tenuous relationship that we have with Calvinism. You can you can say, as I always said as a as a student at NOBTS, I was always like the the weird Calvinist kid in at NOBTS classes. You can say that the Southern Baptist Convention was founded under the Calvinist umbrella. That's that's irrefutable, but you have to say and you have to explain what you mean by Calvinism, um, because five-point Calvinism does not rule the day until the days of Boyce. Um, Four-point Calvinism is really the law of the land, and I think, that Do- I think that Boyce pretty much comes out in his abstract of whatever he calls his systematic theology. He, he comes out in his systematic theology and says... There's a reason five-point Calvinism has not been around, and his name is Andrew Fuller. Um, So it is is not an exaggeration to say that John... You know, people ask me all the time, they go, why are you always studying uh, Jonathan Edwards? That would be like telling someone who's studying... Asking someone who's studying American religious history why they're studying Edwards is like asking a classical theist why they're studying Aquinas you cannot do classical theism without studying Aquinas and you cannot understand American religious history without getting your mind around the gigantic umbrella that is left by a man named Jonathan Edwards and that's why I think ju- I think now we're at the point now where there there are almost as many articles being re- being written on the legacy of Edwards as there are of the theology of Edwards Because Edwards didn't hold to moral governmental theory. Um, But there are entire movements of people who take his ideas and they come up with this theory. Uh, So to answer your question in a roundabout way, Brandon, um, Boyce recovers five-point Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention, and it is really by the providence of God uh, that he inevitably becomes the inaugural president of the first seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention and gets to basically rewrite history for the convention.
1: So there, and I realize Boyce is a little bit later than these other names, but so there weren't uh, there weren't two identifiable streams, I guess, that were flowing alongside of one another in Southern Baptist life. One of which was more um, Calvinistic, and then the other was more, um, you know, moral government theory. Uh, influenced by by Edwards. Is, 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 it, is it not two streams that are going right alongside one another, or is it just kind of Boyce just kind of went out and did his own thing, and then maybe he brought the, the Calvinism to a point that it had never been?
2: Um, Man, that's tough to say. Um, I will say this. To Boyce's credit... Boyce is never quite taken with moral governmental theory. So I don't wanna I don't wanna make it seem like he's just this mindless disciple of Hodge because he's not. I think Hodge cements his cements his high point high five point Calvinism. But there was a controversy at Furman Academy where a a professor of theology, Mims was his last name, was essentially they tried to oust him because he denied the doctrine or the traditional doctrine of imputation, and there was an there was a huge division, and Boyce did not take the Edwardsian side, um, and so there are hints of Boyce always leaning against. And I think if we were to go back in time and ask Boyce, you know, what, 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 why did you not take, why were you not taken with the whole Edwardsian New Divinity project? I think he probably would have pointed you to that concept of imputation. I think I think once Boyce started to see that moral governmental theory was rewriting the um, traditional uh, Luther or Calvin esque. Concept of imputation, I think that he was he was done with the New Divinity project. And I think that's a why a lot of people at Princeton were done with it. I think people at Princeton, I know um Archibald Alexander loved Edwards. Um he loved revivalism. Uh he just didn't like the New Divinity guys. Uh Hodge. Mm, Hodge liked Edwards. Uh, that one of my big critiques is that Hodge really never really liked revivalism ever at all. Um, but I will say um, this: this uh, this sea change that happens with uh, Boyce. I think that it, you know, his. For instance, I've read uh, I, this was in my book. Boyce's Sunday school teacher as a child was nicknamed the Jonathan Edwards of the South. Someone actually called him that. Um, I mean, his first Boyce's first uh, church that he pastored was planted by William B. Johnson, uh, who was a Hopkinsian. Uh, Was actually the first pastor was actually Jonathan Maxey, who was a Hopkinsian. Sorry, Hopkinsian means New Divinity. Um, So it's actually amazing that it is it is it is by God's providence that Boyce could come up and not have a little Edwardsian flavor to him, considering how he was raised in South Carolina, where seemingly every leader who taught him uh, was imbued with a little bit of Edwardsian theology, and the fact that he comes out as a Hodgian, um is really remarkable. So Boyce does really always have this kind of um, confessional, high, five-point Calvinistic stance, um, and so he really does recover that, uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention. The problem, though, is when we talk about the founders, t- people today to talk about the founders, they go, we need to go back to the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's where we really need to go. And then we need to go back to Boyce. And then and then there's like a whole host of Southern Baptists who are like, founders, Boyce? Boyce isn't a founder. Uh, I mean, he was around, but people forget that there's a long time between 1845 uh, and the Civil War, uh, or 1845 and even 1859, Um, there are a lot of people, Basil Manley Sr., I mean, Richard Fuller, uh, W.T. Brantley, I mean, you got a, you've got a ton of Southern Baptists who predate Boyce, and I think, as I might have said, I'm not sure, but there is a Calvinistic umbrella over the Southern Baptist Convention always in the 19th century, it's just, the question is which kind of Calvinism is it, so... There is a sea change, so to speak, that happens with Boyce. Um, but you know, even uh even uh Basil Manley Jr., who writes the abstract of principles with Boyce at Southern seminary, uh, he was converted by reading uh Edwards. Uh he was actually converted by reading Edwards. I mean, so you just Edwards's legacy continues even at the seminary. And then you got John Dagg. I mean, we're not even gonna. I am amazed that I am the only person other than maybe Greg Wills, maybe Tom Nettles. Other than a group of people, I feel like I'm the f- only one to go, wait a minute, John Dagg is just... You know how we always make fun of uh, John Piper for just regurgitating Edwards? That is exactly what John Dagg was doing. John, if you read Manual Theology and you read Boyce, they are nothing alike. John, we De- you know, I think we all go, we need to get back to Dag and Boyce. Well, which one is it? Because they're, they're, they're nothing alike. Dag's is great and Boyce's is great. But Dag is just pulling Edwards left and right. The thing is, he just never cites Edwards. And the reason he doesn't do that is because he doesn't cite anybody. Dagg really believed in a kind of a simple theology um, or just kind of, you know, going to the scriptures. Um, but my point is... Boyce is constantly surrounded by men who are heavily influenced by the ideas of Edwards and the Edwardsians. Uh, and I would say Boyce is influenced as well. Um, but Boyce does have this consistent tendency toward Princetonian Calvinism that his uh, predecessors and his contemporaries do not.
1: I do not. I don't want to oversimplify things by just kind of creating two camps here, like we have the, the Boyce camp and then the Edwardsian moral government camp, but just for for sake of argument here, we have these uh, two different groups here, uh, Boyce and, and those w- that would be like him, and then the Edwardsians. We talked about their different uh, views on the atonement, but are, how much do their views on confessionalism um, overlap or differ when, when we're comparing those two different groups?
2: Sure. Um, the Edwardsians... In the North, meaning the New Divinity guys, Samuel Hopkins, Joseph Bellamy, Timothy Dwight, um, those guys are not confessionalists. I mean, uh, they, they, they'll, they'll study the Westminster Confession. They don't deny the Westminster Confession, but Edwards' New England disciples are not... Uh, I, think I've, I think I put it like this. Um, you know, Edwards is kind of a loose constructionist of the Westminster Confession. Um, He's not, you know, uh, in my book, I talk about Robert Louis Dabney, uh, the Southern Presbyterian, if y'all know anything about him. Dabney, I use Dabney in the book as the kind of confessionalist that Edwards is not. Uh, Dabney torches Edwards, uh, cuts him up by the roots, as one one person said. Uh, Dabney thought Edwards was way too creative. Uh, Dabney is the, he's that, he's that strict Presbyterian faith par excellence, you know, he, he, uh, so he, you know, he holds to the Westminster Confession and Edwards holds the Westminster Confession, but I think ultimately Edwards's legacy is defined by disciples who don't really, they're really creative and they don't put as much of a, an emphasis on confessionalism, so to your question... Uh, the Edwardsian tradition is defined by a loose confessionalism, uh, whereas those who are not as influenced by the Edwardsian tradition um, often have a stricter adherence to the confessions. Uh, and you know, I'm not sure that Edwards would have wanted it to be that kind of either or. Um, and and to your point, it's not as if one; it's exactly one or the other. Um, but I would say that Edwards. Because of how creative Edwards was, and he was an enlightenment thinker, as we as we said, because Edwards was such a a powerful mind, his he left behind disciples who were trying to do the same thing he was doing and they didn't always do it as well. Um so Edwards is Edwards. I think Edwards is timeless in so many of his ideas. I, I, I personally think the one of the greatest ideas he left behind for American revivalism was the difference between natural and moral ability. Um, but his disciples often take those ideas into dangerous directions, and by the time Charles Hodge gets on the scene, you know he can only view Edwards through the lens of his successors, and he's like, I don't like this at all. Um, so it's not necessarily Hodge, it's not like Hodge is a fuddy-duddy where he just doesn't like revivalism, even though I personally sometimes think Hodge could have been a little bit more affectionate in his theology. Um, you can see that Hodge sees these revivalistic um, new divinity extremes, and he's like, I'm off that train. Um, so I will say, and this is just me kind of putting on my pastor hat for a second, I think what Edwards was doing was was fantastic. I, I, I really like Edwards' ideas. I like his direction. Um, but I would say that ultimately, it's the confessional Calvinists, y'all probably like this due to your podcast, it's the confessional Calvinists who kind of win the day and get and get to tell the story. Because at the end of the day, they kind of win. Because, I mean, you guys started out the podcast and you're like, who are the new divinity? Uh, so the new divinity didn't win the Calvinism battle, so to speak. I don't want to be too simplistic. Um, that's part of the reason I wrote the book, is to kind of reintroduce people to these guys who played around with the atonement and had these crazy ideas, and they came from Edwards. Uh, I think that you have to know those people, uh, to tell the Southern Baptist story, um, but ultimately, in a legacy sense, uh, it's the confessional Princetonian Presbyterians who more faithfully hand down their tradition, and I think that's, uh, uh, I think most people would agree with that who in terms of the people who specialize in American religious history.
0: Well, I've got like five questions that I think I want to ask, but I'm going to stick to this one at least first. So when we think about the formation of the SBC, I know we've been thinking a lot and talking a lot about who tells a story, but in your opinion, when we take everything together, is the formation of the SBC ultimately something that's theological? There's an impulse that's being motivated by that, or is it based upon pragmatism or something else? What's, What's that driving, motivating factor for the formation of it?
2: Yeah, Um trying to come up with a an analogy. Um, because the Southern Baptist Convention f- forms over the issue of slavery, you have a group of men, I think there's, was it 293 messengers that meet in Augusta, Georgia in 1845? Um, both laity and clergymen. But... Because of the circumstances by which Southern under which the Southern Baptist Convention is formed socially, <clears throat> because it's not theology that brings them together, before you have the formation or the development of a quote unquote Southern Baptist theology, you essentially have a group of men who are under the umbrella of a much older, larger, more American tradition known as the Edwardsian tradition. So I would say that, um, to answer your question, the Southern Bass Convention is forged over slavery, it's forged over the right of missionaries to own slaves, Um, and because of that, you see that the men and Um, the missionaries and the theologians and the presidents who kind of begin the denomination, you can see them being animated by the Edwardsian tradition pretty powerfully. But ultimately, it is James P. Boyce, well, John Dagg, too, uh, due to his manual of theology, which is really influential. But you can see that Boyce has a unique opportunity just simply by virtue of when he lived and by the Civil War and by the power of his own mind, Boyce has an opportunity with the founding of Southern Seminary to essentially get to determine the, tra- the theological trajectory of the entire denomination. That's essentially what happens.
0: Now, going back to the atonement, especially moral government theory of atonement, does the acceptance of that and other variations of the atonement end up fueling a sort of anti credalism in Baptist life? Is Or is this connected to other historical movements, whether that's the Campbellites or something else? I mean, I'm not a historian. I don't have my timeline straight, so that's probably... A hundred years later, or something. Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to stop thinking about dates. I'm not good at that. But is that playing into it at all? Is is moral government theory those sort of things leading to an anti-greedalism? Um.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to find. I don't want to try to find moral governmental theory just lurking behind every rock and tree. Um. You know, as if it's just suddenly or or Edwardian tradition, as if it's. Uh, propelling all kinds of things. I, I definitely think there's an overlap but be- between uh, non-confessionalism and a tendency toward the Edwardsian doctrines, for sure. But, you know, you know who loves him some confessionalism and he reveres Edwards is uh, Patrick hughes Mel. if y'all are familiar with him. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He's still the longest-tenured Southern Baptist Convention president we've ever had. His mother was an old-school Congregationalist. Um, Mel loves slavery, loves the Doctrine of Providence, loves the Westminster Confession, and loves Edwards. Um, So there are men who profoundly shape the Southern Baptist Convention who are contemporaries of Boyce, uh, who are proving that, you know, look, just as Boyce loved confessions and had his own ideas, there were people who are able to hold confessionalism, um, and uh, and Edwardsian ideas together. And even before the uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, Richard Furman kind of does that. Richard Furman, lo- you know, he's his predecessor, Oliver Hart, uh, is a kind of a co-writer or co-author for the Charleston Confession. The Charleston Confession and the early proponents of the Charleston Confession are both deeply confessional and deeply Edwardsian. Um, so, to get back to your question, I think there's other factors at play there. Uh, it's not very theological and not very scholarly of me to say that the Southern Bass Convention is as much a hodgepodge today as it ever was. I mean, you just that's you're not going to find. I, I don't think I, I don't think anyone needs to write a paper even though I I have and I tried once. Um, I don't think anyone needs to write a paper on why the Southern Baptist Convention is so diverse. I think it's just a fact. Um, You just have a lot of people together under a big umbrella, and you're always going to have different people who believe different things. And I think, um, you know, I I don't want to paint a stereotype, but if there were people today, i.e. founders, um who think that we need to confessionalize this denomination and maybe they don't I don't I don't know what Tom Askell thinks now um, but if Tom Askell thinks that we need to inject confessionalism into this denomination um, I don't think it's has ever happened and I don't think it ever will uh, under under the the under the auspices of how we administrate this denomination today um, so uh you know, there the all all I will say is this there is a consistent pattern in early Southern Baptist life for those who adhere to Edwardsian doctrines to also be loose in their interpretation of confessions. Uh but it, you know, RBC Howell, RBC Howell, if y'all know him, he was a big bad I don't think you do, but you you guys are you guys are like maybe. Um he was a big Baptist I know the name. Okay. Uh he was a big Baptist at First Baptist Nashville. He was a big proponent of missionaries. Um anyway, he was a big Edwardsy and he loved Timothy Dwight. Um and uh he was somewhat confessional, I think. Um so anyway, there's the 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 conf- the tendency the, the legacy that Edwards leaves behind in the Submass Convention is is so big that you know many books could be written. Um but I do think that um I think that ultimately his uh the Edwardsian tradition and Edwardsian ideas are passed down and they they evolve so um they evolve into things that their their original proponents never I- imagined. Um and so there are men, I mean Charles Finney, do you think do you think Edwards would have ever claimed Charles Finney? And yet Charles Finney's walking around going Edwards would love this and everyone's going <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's just kind of what we do today sometimes with our heroes, but, you know, ultimately Edwards would have just, like, cowered and tried to hide behind a tree if he saw what Edwards was doing under the name of Edwards, um, and I think that's just what happens when you play around with ideas and you get to, uh, you get to, hey, and I'm telling you, analytic guys, this is a, this is, this is a word to you analytic theologians, Okay. Edwards was right to make distinctions. He was right to make, to distinguish. He was right to see the difference between natural and moral ability. He was right to define further what we meant by freedom of the will. He was right to, to, to kind of uh, try to capture God's providence a little better so that we're not fatalists. Edwards was right to do all of those things. The problem was... uh. He could not, beyond the grave, once he was dead, he had no power to see where those ideas would go. So the question today for the analytic theology movement is not always, are you right today? And I think it's, it's, how are you going to stay orthodox and hold those ideas in tension with, Uh, The faith once delivered to the saints, and I think your response to that would probably be, "That's why you're both confessional and analytic," Um, (laughs) and that's right. And I just, I would say that my 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 suspicion is not of what analytic theology is today. My suspicion and my my hesitancy is what analytic theology will be tomorrow.
1: We got a mini sermon there. That's that's good. All right. I have one final thing I want to ask you before we land the plane uh on book recommendations. So I feel like most of the Baptist stuff that we've done on the podcast so far has really revolved around English Baptist. Um so we've we've done a lot of book recommendations uh when it comes to English Baptists, but as somebody who's been immersed in American Baptist history, what are your three? Just give me your three favorite books from American Baptist history, uh, as just a fan, not even necessarily uh, as a scholar, just for somebody that a pastor or a layperson that you think they'd really enjoy.
2: Um, I would, I would suggest. You know which which book I just read recently was uh, "Plain Theology for Plain People" uh, by Booth. Um, I, I really like that, and he's got, he's playing around with moral government, too. Um, there is somebody who's writing, uh, a dissertation right now, or trying to, and in that dissertation, they're, um, they're trying to see whether Booth was influenced by John Dagg. Um, and that's the second one I would maybe recommend John Dagg. Some people would say, well, you can't really recommend him because of his views on slavery. Um... But, you know, I would say, I would still recommend Manual Theology. I think it's a great a great work. I think it's very plain. Uh, Mark Dever, uh, maybe 20 years ago, said that it was a you know sublime theology. Um, John Leland's uh, Rights of Conscience Inalienable. Uh, if you're looking at religious liberty, it's still a timeless work. Uh, Isaac Bacchus's The Truth Will Prevail. Um, there's just a lot written today that written by Baptists in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, and that that I would recommend. But you know, I would say this: Michael Haken has left behind a legacy of. I mean, you talk about me publishing. My goodness, I feel like when I wake up tomorrow, he will have published another book. Michael Haken publishes like a like a a wild man. Um, and he's he's editing books, you know, he just edits books, and somehow, sometimes I'm like, this, how does he, you know, he's just like, he's writing, he's editing, but I think one thing we'll look back at Michael Haken and, and see is that he didn't just write, but also kind of found a way to capture our interest in English Baptists. Uh, he he kind of took us over the pond and, and said, hey, look at what these baptists did or you know uh and i will say this i, I think that it's great to read english baptists and i also think that right now we're we're looking at america and slavery and we're kind of going you know what i don't know if these i don't know if these works of theology are safe anymore um but i would as someone who dabbles in american religious history i would have to say there are still great works written by men of God who were blind, fallen men, Uh, and I think that we can still recover precious theological truths from them. I just think in God's providence He is showing us that we have to always, um, we always have to read fallen men of God uh, through the prism of Scripture. And uh, so uh, to your question, I think there's a lot of works I could I could go on, um, but I think that we should not simply overlook 17th and or sorry 18th and 19th century Baptists just because there was slavery at that time. I think there were a lot of men of God who produced a lot of sublime works of Scripture uh, or, or uh, of theology, uh, but we should still be reminded that we can we can glean wisdom from them as long as we understand that we can't just take everything they said wholesale just because they had uh, Calvinist or Baptist next to them. Then.
0: Well, man, this has been a, a ton of fun. And I think all of our Baptist history nerds are just the history nerds in general who listen to the show are going to have a ton of stuff that they enjoyed about this and want you to come back on and talk for three more hours about all the nuances of the, the historical beginnings of the Southern Baptist Convention. Because I mean, whether you're Baptist or not, it, this has a, a tremendous impact on how we see the world today. So I think it's fascinating. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Todd's work, you can check him out on Twitter. You can check out his Amazon page where all 57 of his books are going to be located, as well as all the journal articles uh, that you can find. I mean, he, he really does pump out new work constantly, and it's all awesome. So I, I highly recommend you checking out his stuff, reading it, finding it. And utilizing it for your own personal benefit and ministry. Uh, as always, those who have been listening, uh, we we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.